0: Good morning, CBF. Today's scripture is from the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 24, starting in verse one. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En-Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, what do you listen, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks you, your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we just marvel at your grace in our lives that we can come to you and that we can call you Abba. We can call you Father. And uh, Lord, we marvel uh, as we go to the text here today, we're just being reminded of the grace in the life of your people and how you've orchestrated events that bring us to the New Testament and the descendants of David. But we see, going back to the life of David, how your hand is upon this one. And so, Father, I just ask that you guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We are journeying through the life of David this summer. It's an exciting journey. Last week I was on pins and needles, but David did beat Goliath, and that was exciting. And now we come to this scene. So 1st Samuel chapter 24, it is the season for traveling, is it not? You book this marvelous one-week getaway and upon arrival and check-in, they inform you that you have an opportunity to have a free breakfast, passes to the water park, and vouchers for a local show. If you would just attend a 75-minute presentation. (laughs) Oh, I thought, I can handle that. So you, you know, yeah, I can do that. So two days later, you attend this meeting. The breakfast buffet, I mean, it's enormous. The views are gorgeous, and you know you're in trouble, right? Out walks the representative, and three hours later, you're looking at your watch. You're looking at your wife going, I thought this was done after 75 minutes. And as you get up to leave, the representative says, but before you leave, I have an opportunity of a lifetime. (laughs) <laughs> David has an opportunity of a lifetime in 1 Samuel chapter 24 Let's look what the text says in verse 1 When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines He was said, hey, we know where David is hiding Now, you got to jump back a little bit Because we've, there's been a lot of water that's passed between the Elah Valley David fighting Goliath And now here at the Springs of En Gedi And we'll talk about that in a minute, where that is, why this is so significant, because it is. Saul, in chapter 18, after David, and we'll talk about this in a minute, defeats Goliath, defeats the Philistines, the green monster grows, and Saul becomes very jealous. In chapter 23 of Samuel, David is surrounded. It does not look good. Humanly speaking, David is in trouble. And lo and behold, the Philistines attack again, and Saul has to give up the pursuit of David. Go take care of the Philistines. He's done that. They're now subdued. All's quiet on the western front, or eastern front. And now Saul goes back to taking out David. Remember what happened after David beat Goliath? And if you look at the next chapter, Walt. David's taking out more and more Philistines. The crowds declare, Saul took down his thousands. David has taken down his tens of thousands. This does not bow well for Saul. Jealousy is a cancer that eats at the soul and it develops into an outbreak of irrational and self-centered rashes. And that's exactly what happens to Saul. Saul. In 18, as David is playing the harp, trying to minister to Saul, Saul picks up a spear and tries to pin David against the wall. I mean, what? This is this crazy? Now David, your son-in-law. He's married the daughter. And several times from 18 until this point, we see David giving out an edict. David must be assassinated. He's a threat. We've gone into paranoia. <laughs> and so then Saul in fact we read between 18 and now David's or Saul's own son Jonathan the heir to the throne warns uh, David that Saul wants to kill him Saul's daughter warns David dad wants to kill you unless you think Saul is playing around at the end of 1 Samuel 22 Saul has 85 priests executed because He thought they hid David and sided with David. 85 priests. we'll come back to that in a minute because this text brings this together. So we got the refugee David. He's hiding in, it says in the text, in the desert of En-Gedi. Now let me show you the desert of En-Gedi picture's worth a thousand words so let's see where we are this is the dead sea you can see a little bit there's bethlehem up to about the center of the slide so we've gone about 12 miles down 14 miles down to and this is a this is a oh this is called the wilderness it's a desert this isn't where you want to build a home sorry there's not much here less than two inches of rain all year Temperatures go well over 100 degrees in the summertime when we would take buses down to the Dead Sea. It can get so hot you can't touch the, the glass from the inside of the bus. It's so hot down in this region in the middle of the summer. But in the midst of the wilderness is this oasis called En Gedi. In fact, if you were to go up into the, you'd see on the left side of the lower falls. We go further up, you get into the upper falls. It's a beautiful area. It was, it's known for its lush vegetation, its high-quality dates. It was a perfect hideout for David. There's caves all around. So, I mean, it's just perfect. He can hide wherever he wants. You also, in the spring of En Gedi, from that region, you can see all around for miles. You got the Dead Sea on one side, the wilderness on the other. It's a perfect hideout. And this is where David is, the text tells us. David is in the desert of En Gedi. So we're told Saul brings 3,000 select men. Wow. He puts an army together of men to chase after David. We know know from 1 Samuel 23 that David has a guerrilla army of about 600 men. But that's still 5 to 1 ratio. (laughs) Choice soldiers, David's army, and we know in 1 Samuel 22, we're told that the men who followed David, these 600, all those who were in trouble or who owed some money or who discontented gathered around David. This is a ragamuffin group of soldiers. They're not experienced, not like Saul's army. And Saul comes with these 3,000. It does not look good. (laughs) Right? (laughs) In fact... It all seems to be falling apart until you get to verse 3. And it says, Saul came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. He went there to use the restroom. You're not getting from the, out of the heat. He went to use the restroom. Talking about vulnerability. I mean, there's humor here. You have to chuckle, right? I mean, come on. The text is, I, I love it. And they leave nothing out. So we've gone to the wc but in the wc in the recesses we're told dave and his men were sitting there in the recesses of the cave this is an opportunity of a lifetime here it is <laughs> saul's a sitting duck no pun intended no, took you a little bit the caves, as we know, it's not as if David is trapped because the, the, the caves, many of the caves in the Ungeti region are interlocked. So in other words, they had to escape out the back. Saul's not trapped, or David's not trapped. Saul is in serious trouble. The guards are outside. He's alone here in the cave. And David and his men, it's not just David. It's an opportunity to eliminate the guy who's trying to kill you and your followers. This is it. It's an opportunity, David, to take the throne. After all, you were promised that throne back in Bethlehem when Samuel anointed you. You demonstrated your allegiance to the Lord. Saul sure hasn't. And furthermore, it's an opportunity to exonerate your name. Saul has been making all these innuendos, these accusations. Now is the time to take it. Thrust that sword in his belly. Get rid of him. He's a louse. That's definitely what David's men thought. Because notice what the text says. Look what they stated. And it says, David's men said to, to him, this is the day about which the Lord has said to you, this is God's will. You, you, couldn't, ask, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better opportunity. <laughs> this is what we've been waiting for. I mean, after all, revenge is best served cold. It's in a cave. Uh, nothing is sweeter than revenge. So basically, revenge is ice cream, but that's on another story. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? If, we, if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? I mean, it is human nature. You poke my eye, I'm going to poke yours. You throw a stick at me, I'll throw a dump truck at you. I mean, we're going after each other. We'll comment later in this passage, but we mustn't forget the temptation that lies at the path for revenge and retaliation. It is very slippery. It's very dangerous. If an individual is resentful, holding grudges, or continuing to lick their wounds, then that individual be, will be I I believe this wholeheartedly, will be enslaved to pride, self-pity, and vengeance. All which will result in broken relationships and loss of joy. David is on the precipice. It's an opportunity of a lifetime, and you can see it two different ways. (laughs) He could throw it all away if he takes out Saul. If you're a believer... We're going to talk more, but if you're a believer, you need to claim God's power to forgive through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson gives us a great quote. If we know anything of the release of forgiveness, if we've glimpsed anything of the magnitude of the debt we owe to God, our forgiveness of others will not seem to be such a large leap. Remember, it's a little hard to pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us if we're holding grudges or unwilling to forgive. And that's the point here. Swindoll, I love it, on his commentary on this text, he goes, trust me on this one, you'll never regret forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it. (laughs) That's great. Again, now this doesn't rule out national defense nor standing up in the public arena or addressing personal offenses or even possibly needing to take legal action. I'm not saying that, but it does mean we need to forgive. there are consequences for sin I understand that but here David has an opportunity to take out Saul and his men are saying do it this is it you've caught him with his pants down go for it (laughs) right this is it we've been waiting for this I mean you can you can hear those soldiers I mean think about this they too are the ones that Saul's been going after David, you, if it was the other way around, he wouldn't think twice of killing you. And, and to add insult to injury little, really, to David's men, what does he do? David plays seamstress. He, he takes off some threads. Do what? I mean, it's such a bizarre... I mean, what, what did the text tell us? And David got up quietly and he cut off an edge of Saul's robe. Verse 4. We need to be careful allegorizing the text or, or symbolizing this, but I do think there could be an allusion to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, if you remember, Samuel meets Saul, and he uses an object lesson, and he tears a garment. And the text tells us, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than than you in other words David cutting off the hymn I believe could suggest it's a further indication Saul you've lost the blessing of the Lord and I am the one that is going to reign I am the one that was anointed and that is what bothers David after he does it because what does the text say, state it says his conscience bothered him David knows Saul is still the anointed one of the Lord. He's going to repeat that three times in this text. We'll get to that in a minute. It wasn't David's job to make it right. (laughs) That was God's job. It might have looked like God was placing Saul right in front of him. But when it comes to ascertaining the Lord's will, we need to be very, very careful I had a student once, he said, he was a believer, I'm going to marry that unsaved girl. I've been praying all along, Lord, show me if this is the one. He said, I had green lights all the way to school and I found a parking spot right near the door. It had to be the Lord's will. Well, first of all, you are not to be unequally yoked. So the text has, you've got a problem here. And this is where we need to be careful with the Lord's will. The the men, David's men are saying, this is God's will. But is it? No. The text is clear. The will of God never contradicts his teaching. This is the problem. If we don't know the word of God, we're going to have a real problem understanding God's will for our lives. And what did David know about scripture? You don't run ahead of God. There's a ton of lessons from Genesis until now here in 1 Samuel, object lessons of what happens when we run ahead of God. While the kingdom is reserved for David, it was not to be taken in his own power. The honor was not to him for him to be seizing it, but it was to be granted by the Lord in the Lord's timing and in the Lord's manner. You know, I love it that David's conscience bothered him. Don't you? It shows a man who has a heart for God, who's sensitive to the things of the Lord, but more importantly, that he's concerned about God's glory. It's it's what drives David. It's not his security. It's not his image. It's not his well-being. You don't hear David saying, I don't care. It's do me. This guy was a jerk, right? I played for him. He tried to kill me. Uh, you know you don't see any of this instead you see what John the Baptist declared he that is Christ must increase I must decrease dads this is a perfect lesson for us what a great father's day gift you could give to your family is to say no Christ will increase I have to decrease David was concerned about the Lord's reputation in the battle with Goliath in the Elah Valley the text tells us that and he is continually concerned about the Lord's reputation, even in the caves of Engedi. So David puts at ease his men, which is an amazing thing here. And he says to, here in the text in verse 6, this is the Lord's anointed <laughs> that is referring to Saul. And again, as I mentioned, it's mentioned three times. In fact, this is the first time in 1 Samuel that you see the phrase, anointed of the Lord. By the way, it was used of the priest, the priest of the Lord, and Saul took them out. He raised a hand against them, and here the text is clear. David does not raise a hand against those of the Lord, the anointed. David is such a contrast to Saul. We saw this in the battle in the in Elah the Valley. We're seeing it here again. And remember, First Samuel is trying to show us David is the rightful heir to the throne. This is a man who has a heart after God, not Saul. Saul's who the people wanted. <laughs> That's not who God wanted. It was never the intent. So, David now addresses... You uh, just love this scene. Look at verse 8. Afterward, you know, Saul done his deed he's gone out of the cave he starts to go down the road and David comes out of the cave and he calls to Saul my lord my king (laughs) oops when Saul looked behind him David kneeled down and bowed with his face to the ground imagine David's ragamuffin soldiers seeing this you gotta be kidding David said to Saul, why do you pay attention when men say David is seeking to do you harm? Interesting, in 1 Samuel, there's only one person who tries to do harm, who says, I'm going to harm David, and that is Saul. You killed the priest of Nob, 85 of them, because you thought they were doing harm to you, Saul, and they're not. Because I am not doing harm to you. Today your own eyes see how the Lord delivered you this very day into my hands in the cave. It's the same phrase that David gives to Goliath. Today you're in, the Lord has given you into my hands. And he says to Saul, it's the same thing. But I did not kill you like I killed Goliath. Some told me to kill you, but I had pity i've not extended there it is again my hand against you and in case you need an object lesson here's the robe of your garment can not you see saul what in the world right by the way i don't know how in the world have you tried to cut a piece of garment with a knife or a sword <laughs> i don't know how david didn't uh, saul didn't know what was happening it's amazing we see here in the text, Saul, David will refer to Saul as Lord or Master three times. He'll call him king once, and as we've already stated, he calls him anointed three times. And David is clear here in the text, you have, you have been delivered into my hands. And yet, in chapter 23, verse 14, God did not give David into Saul's hands. God's favor on David is clearly seen, not on Saul he said I, I didn't lay a hand on you like you did the priest it's interesting do you remember the, if you remember the scene when David tells his ser, or, excuse me, Saul tells his servants to kill the priest what do the servants those soldiers say to Saul we're not laying a hand on them they're of the Lord so Saul has to turn to an Edomite a non-Jew to take them out Little trivia to Herod the Great, who we meet in the New Testament, who tries to take out the son of David, that is the Messiah, is also half Edomite. He is not a full Jew. So here you see in the text, David says, I'm not going to lay a hand on you. And again, can you imagine David's soldiers hearing this? I mean, they're watching this transpire. Remember, they're they're the ones that were the social outcasts. They, They were the ones that suffered under Saul's reign. They may have been, even some of them may have been related to those priests who were killed. This is an opportunity, David. Take him out. I think one of the greatest miracles in this scene is that they, the soldiers, didn't run down the road and take out Saul themselves. It shows the respect they have for David and an understanding But David's not done. Look what he says in verse 11 as he's talking to Saul. Look, my father. (laughs) He's a lord king. He calls him father, which it's not uncommon in that Near Eastern world to refer to the king as father because he's the the benefactor. He's the protector. But talk about a Father's Day gift. I only took out the hem. I, I could have taken out your hoodie with your neck in it. You know, happy Father's Day. So he took the piece of robe, which again, I think it's in many ways a symbol of Saul's kingdom that is coming, crashing down. And it, it also shows, as he lifts this up, says, I didn't take your life. David's innocence and his faithfulness and his kindness towards Saul. And I love verse 12. 12 is the secret. May the Lord judge between the two of us and may the Lord vindicate me over you, Put, my, but my hand will not be against you. What's the underlying issue here david is trusting the lord wow when life is hard when the enemy is right there and it's an opportunity of a lifetime it's really hard not to want to run ahead of the lord or take things into our own hands isn't it and david said no this is the lord's doing i love psalm 37 it's one of david's psalms he says fret not yourself because of evildoers Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Wow. Talk about a fine gentleman, a man who's faithful to the Lord. In fact, he even says in verse 13, I'm not wicked. The proverb says, "From because it demonstrates, I didn't eliminate you, Saul. I could have easily taken you out." Verse fourteen, David's starting to wrap up his discussion, and he says, "Who has the king of Israel come after?" I mean, you've got the Philistines who keep attacking, and you use your resources, your manpower, to come after me. I, I'm going he says, I'm, am I a dog? A dead dog. I can't even bark. Am I a flea? One flea. You can kill a flea. I, I, am I that of a threat to you? Later, is gonna make, or David's gonna make a promise to Saul at the end of the text where he says, I will protect your family. Because normally in a Near Eastern world, if you become king, what do you do with the old king's family? They're gone, right? And David makes a promise that to protect them. And one of those descendants whom David befriends and takes care of is Saul's grandson, Moshebosheth. Remember that name? And Mr. M says to David, Who am I, a dead dog that you would care for me? (laughs) Comes full circle. And here, David says, why would you do this? And the principle there in your notes, when the fulfillment of God's promises is delayed, God's people must resist the temptation to force the issue, but to do what is right and wait on the Lord. Another psalm from David, Psalm 25. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. G. Campbell Morgan, the minister of Westminster in the late 1800s, early 1900s, states, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. It's not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means a readiness for any new command that may come and the ability to do nothing until the command is given. In other words, waiting for God is not a sign of weakness, but strength. Any guy could have taken out Saul in the cake. It's not a sign of settling, but adhering. And waiting for God is not a sign of helplessness, but dependence. In other words, David knows to go to the Lord. And this is why his conscience bothered him. Love the old hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Well, Saul might be a fool and evil, (laughs) but he's not stupid. When David finished speaking, the text tells us, Saul said, is that your voice? Now watch this, my son playing off of, you've called me father, I refer to you as son. And then Saul wept bitterly. That term in the Hebrew is loaded. This isn't a few sniffles. (laughs) It's extreme sorrow. It was used in Genesis 21 when Hagar was about to die with her son Ishmael, she wept bitterly. It's used of Naomi when she says goodbye to her daughter-in-laws, it says they wept bitterly. It's used of Job's friends. When they see Job in all the the anguish he's in, in chapter 2, it says they wept bitterly. And Saul, recognizing his own depravity and understanding the grace that has just been extended, the text tells us he weeps bitterly. And he says to David, you are more innocent than I am. (laughs) That is the bottom line in 1 Samuel altogether. Saul david righteous unrighteous dwelling of the spirit evil spirits on him a text that i don't know if we're looking at i can't remember pastor michael but later saul will even consort a witch from indoor i mean how low can you go <laughs> and worse yet he'll go across enemy lines to get to the witch it's unbelievable he says, you are more righteous. Now, he makes two very, very important declarations. Don't miss this. It's key to the whole book of 1 Samuel. The first thing he says is, number one, is he concedes David is right. I mean, Saul states, it's clear. Look at this. He says, the Lord has delivered, uh, delivered me into your hand. Uh, can't you hear David's soldiers in the background? Uh-huh, amen. You preach it. That's right. That's what we told you. David, you should have taken him out. Uh, you can also hear Saul's men who've gone down to the wilderness, left their families to go fight for Saul to find David. They're going, "Wait wait a minute. Isn't this the guy we're supposed to kill?" And for the first time in the text, Saul makes one other amazing declaration. He says, "Now, look, verse 20, I realize that you will, in fact, be king." Wow. Not only does he declare David is innocent, he also declares, yeah, David, you're gonna be king. Saul's son, Jonathan, said it in chapter 23. Now daddy's saying it. Saul does ask for one favor from David, knowing all of this, and this is what I mentioned before. He says, swear to me in the Lord's name that you will not kill my descendants after me or destroy my name. David immediately makes that oath why? Partly is David's character, but he already made that oath to Jonathan. Nothing's new in the text. Saul's son. He said, yeah, I'll protect you. I wish I could promise you that every time you do what is right, your enemy will turn and repent and there'll be a, a kumbaya moment. <laughs> That's not always the case, is it? We are responsible for speaking what is true and what is right. We're accountable to the Lord, not for the false beliefs that they might embrace or actions that they will do but what i can tell you and this is there in your notes the lord keeps his promises and he will don't miss this he will vindicate his name get out of the way allow the lord to do his to to maintain his reputation He doesn't need us, number one. And number two, we don't want to do anything to to hinder what he wants to accomplish. Psalm 77, another psalm from David. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No. That's the response you're supposed to give. He says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right, the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Hmm. Vance Havner wrote, the greatest friend of truth is time. Air is always in a hurry, but God's man, woman, can afford to await the vindication of time. And if he is not vindicated in his lifetime, that's okay. Eternity will settle the score. Hmm. There's an overarching question as we look at this scene. You got this (laughs) opportunity of a lifetime to take out Saul. David doesn't do it. And yet we see some type of reconciliation, though eventually Saul will go right back to trying to kill David. But at this moment, there's a respite. But there's an overarching question, isn't there? And it's in your notes, but why does the Lord allow the journeys to be difficult at times and painful? I mean, couldn't God just said in Bethlehem when David was anointed, that's it, here's your king, Saul, you're retiring, we're done. Or take out Saul, zap him. You know, here's David. Why doesn't the lord just intervene and remove the obstacles or the hurts it's a question i'm sure david and his men asked as they were on the run as refugees (laughs) and while we're not political refugees i suspect it's a question many of us have asked at times in our lives so i'm going to give you five c's for why we encounter the spiritual journey you'll be tested over these at the end of the hour so five C's, here we go. First of all, why does the Lord allow this journey? Why does he, he take David all these years running from Saul and, and all the close calls that are made? Because number one, it's, it's comfort. You see, the trials are an opportunity to experience the Lord's comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, God comforts us in all our troubles. If David had been immediately made king in Bethlehem, think about this, or immediately after the battle of Goliath, he would have missed out on God's comforting hand, God's provisions, God's care, and how God works through even the support of people in this journey. That would have all been lost. So one is comfort. Another C is confidence. It's an opportunity to trust the Lord. Proverbs 3, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. There's a benefit from having nowhere to turn but up. It's the difficulties of life where we forge incredible and glorious trust in the Lord. The richness of the Psalms, I don't think they'd have been there if David didn't have this path of adversity that he took in his life. What would he know about the Lord protecting in the strongholds if he'd never been in a Getty? (laughs) What would he know about God protecting from the enemy if that spear hadn't been hurled across the room from someone he thought liked him? So So there's comfort, there's confidence, there's compliance, and it's an opportunity to learn obedience. I think it was said of Jesus in Hebrews 5, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. David learned invaluable lessons, even in the cave, here in 1 Samuel 24. And had he missed this lesson, ultimately I would argue he would have failed the test. If David had taken out Saul, we got a real problem because he did not trust in God's anointed. So there's comfort, there's confidence, there's compliance, and there's care. It's an opportunity to minister to others. 2 Corinthians 1, so that we can comfort those in trouble as we have also received that comfort from the Lord. Again, some of the most comforting passages of scripture come from the hand of David think about the words he's penned such psalms as Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd it resonates with our souls and why because he's walked similar valleys he understands what it's like and it's what allows him to provide care for others and that's what our journey allows us to do as we minister to one another. You as a church are doing that so well. <laughs> Keep it up. It's so exciting to see what God is doing at CBF. You're modeling this in the midst of the journeys that each one of you are walking. And the final C is courage to stand for truth and not to waver as we witness the Lord work in and through us for his glory. I mean, anyone can be a rock. if there's no opposition. David learned during this time of being a refugee that he did not need to fear people, be enslaved to public opinion, or cower in the midst of hardship. Psalm 18, many scholars believe, is the psalm that David wrote out of this experience in 1 Samuel 24 not going to read the whole psalm. You might want to do that this afternoon. But I'm going to read a section of Psalm 18. Listen to what he says. The Lord is my high ridge. My stronghold. My deliverer. My God is my rocky summit where I take shelter. My shield, the horn that saves me in my refuge. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I was delivered from my enemies. This is great. Foreigners lose their courage. They shake with fear, but not me. I'm bold. I'm strong because I know who my God is and I will sing praises to you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Well, the Lord was extending grace to Saul and boy, he did. Did he not? There's so many opportunities for Saul to repent and no, he doesn't the Lord was preparing David at the same time to take the throne and be the spiritual leader necessary for God's people. But what he needed for David to learn were the five C's, that is comfort, confidence, compliance, care, and courage. We're called to trust in the Lord, resisting the temptation to run ahead of him. Clinging to the promises he's given and allow him to vindicate his name. In the interim, we need to take advantage of the five C's. After all, it is an opportunity for a lifetime. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious text. Just love the color, the, the image that's seen here. And it's so significant, which appears to be minor, that some threads were cut off of a robe. That in actuality, it's symbolic, but it also demonstrates David's heart. That he would be bothered that he did it. Because he understood, Lord, you're in charge, not us. We don't run ahead. You will vindicate your name. And we are so grateful for that. What an amazing statement that David can say to Saul. The Lord is the judge. He judged my heart. Lord, may we be able to say that. May we be able to walk in innocence in holiness and purity as we cling to you, cling to the promises. And thank you. Thank you that we can call you, Father, and that we can come to you. And we don't understand all things. But we know you were there, going before us, caring deeply. It gives us courage, it gives us strength, and an opportunity to minister to others as we bask in your presence. In Jesus' name.